Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. This is Barry Ritholtz. And again, I know I say this every week. We have a very special guest this week. But this week, we really have a very special guest. His name is David Booth. He is the founder and chairman of Dimensional Funds. They run a couple of shekels, over $400 billion. You may recognize the name Booth, courtesy of the Chicago Graduate School of Business, also known as the David S. Booth School of Business, David Booth, the Booth School at Chicago. Uh, David made a fairly tremendous gift to the Booth School of, at the time, it was valued at $300 million, but considering it was a mix of cash and stock spread out over a number of years, it might even be worth closer to half a billion is my back-of-the-envelope guess based on uh, the assets under management in Chicago. Uh, I mean, at Dimensional, what that means to the Chicago school, and um, it's, it's really worked out tremendously well. David really credits Chicago for all of the success he's had in his career. Dimensional is just a monster uh, fund. They've done really well, starting out with literally $0 in 1981. They're now coming up on half a trillion dollars. They don't sell directly to the public. About a little less than half of what they do is institutional. The other half is sold through financial advisors and full disclosure. My office is a dimensional shop. We've we've been using them as part of our core portfolios, and, and we've been really happy with them both as uh, a service provider and the, the performance of the funds. I think you'll find David is really a fascinating guy. He doesn't usually do these sorts of interviews. He's more of a print guy. Uh, so it was really interesting to hear him unedited, unvarnished in his own words, uh, very, very savvy individual. And when you look at, at the success, when you look at what he's built over the years, it's really uh, quite amazing. So rather than have me babble on and on, with no further ado, here is my conversation with David Booth. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Today, my special guest is David Booth. David is the founder, chairman, and co-CEO of Dimensional Funds, an asset management firm running over $400 billion. A little background about David. He got his degree in economics in 1968 at Kansas, where he also got a master's in business the following year, and then ended up going to the University of Chicago for his MBA uh, in 1971, as of now, the University of Chicago is known as the David Booth Graduate School of Business following a major endowment made, um, I should really call you Dr. Booth, but I know that- No, 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 I, it's it, uh, David, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have the- uh, The um, official. The official, right. Well, David, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your, your background. 
in your you're from Kansas. Did you have and you and you obviously focused on business and got your master's in business. Did you ever have any plans on going into the world of investment before your MBA? Uh, no, actually, I went uh, when I went to Chicago. I went into the PhD program. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went there with the idea of becoming a professor eventually. Going back to Kansas. Going back to Kansas and teaching. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, how on earth did you make that pivot from being a professor to running a very large and successful investment firm? Well, my um, um, how it came about was in, in my uh, second year in the program, I was working for Gene Fama. The you know, Nobel laureate, famous for developing the efficient market yeah. hypothesis, right? And it was a phenomenally great experience. But I, I realized I didn't, uh, um, yeah, I no longer want to be a professor. What? I, and as he tells the story, mm-hmm. um, I walked into his office one day and said, uh, "I know what you do, and I don't want to do it." Uh, now, why is that? I, I've read you said that he's the smartest, most intuitive, most competitive person. You met at the time, right. and you didn't want to enter field where you're up against hundreds of guys <laughs> like that. Well, I think it's more than that. It's um, I love the competition because uh, you know we uh, chose to go in the money management business, which is highly competitive. Uh, so it's not so much about the competition as as it is that uh, I'm not very good at studying something for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to uh, really come out with these great research um, uh, projects. Uh, you know, it, it requires an, an ability to sit there and study for years on end uh, the same subject. And I realized I didn't have that. So you didn't want to just focus on that one niche and, and do that deep dive. Let's talk a little bit about, um, you mentioned the course you took with Fama was life-changing. Yeah, totally. Is, is that That's not an exaggeration, is it? No, it's not an exaggeration at all. I mean, I was a 22-year-old, uh, never... Grew up in a very modest household, like most people of the time, mm-hmm. and um, the uh, my first course in investing was uh, was taught by Gene Fama, and it all made sense to me. It uh, it wasn't until later I found out almost nobody else believed that uh, you know what he was teaching. But so I really was uh, it was transformative to me, and it was a period of time that was really transformative for the field of finance. The field of finance really uh, went through their score of years from the mid-50s to the mid-70s where it kind of really went from a nothing field to a true academic discipline with models and theories and, and good research. So let's talk about um, some time after you left, uh, I, I was going to call it Booth, but I, I guess I really can't. Well, University of Chicago. Um, Mac McCowan hired you at uh, Wells Fargo where pretty much – he created what was the first practical index fund. Tell That's, us about your experience working with McAllen. Okay, well, I'll, I'll start with a connection. First, so when uh, I, I talked to Fahman and said I wanted to leave the program, he called up Mac and uh, said, uh, because Mac had uh, always wanted to hire one of his students, and so, uh, uh, and Mac wanted to come out with a what was seemingly crazy idea at the time of an index fund. And, uh, and he and I hit it off, and we went out and uh, and uh, started the first index fund in 1971. Mostly for institutions. That it, it was a- only institutional, and and we really didn't. Uh, funny enough, we weren't uh, successful enough or quickly enough. Uh, so eventually, the uh, Wells Fargo shut down our group, 
And uh, not a great decision there. Not huh? a great decision. <laughs> well, it continued on. Uh, it turned out to be good for them because the trust department then picked it up. Then the trust, after a number of years, Wells Fargo uh, sold half the business to Nico, and then the whole business to Nico, and then Nico sold it to Barclays, and then. Barclays sold BlackRock. So right, it's, uh, so that became iShares. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what was the, I recall reading Samsonite Luggage was yeah. somehow involved in the original right. index fund. What what was their relationship there? Well, they uh, uh, called the uh, uh, University of Chicago and a professor there, Jim Laurie, and said, who's trying to apply these ideas? And Laurie said, well, Wells Fargo, this group out there. So so Samsonite called us up and said, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, why don't we go with it? So that was for their pension fund. For their they pension just was fund. running uh, right. really the first a practical index fund. Was it just the S and P five hundred, or what was the index based on? It was an equal equally weighted uh, index fund. Uh, really? Yeah, it was kind of. That's interesting. Say, so, yeah, well, you have to. It's a product of the times, you know. In the early seventies, uh, the people promised all kinds of wild uh, performance uh, right. uh, objectives, and and so. You're always trying to figure out how can you, using come from the passive side of things, how can you uh, uh, create something that has a, a chance of beating the market? And by holding equally weighted uh, securities instead of the S&P 500, which is market cap, cap weighted, weighted yeah. uh, that uh, that uh, got to more the smaller companies and uh, greater emphasis to higher beta stock so that and, and the old joke is that the the mad dash for alpha often leaves not only no alpha but no beta yeah there you go <laughs> i'm barry ritholtz you're listening to masters in business on bloomberg radio my special guest today is david booth he is the co-ceo and chairman of dimensional fund advisors a 400 billion asset management business and and before the break we were talking about um how you founded the company and the the Company legend is this was begun in a brownstone in Brooklyn. Well, that's right. It was. Um, I wouldn't say that uh, the idea was uh, destined for success necessarily. It wasn't predetermined that it would be successful. the The idea we started with uh, was a small company uh, index linked uh, type portfolio. Um, I say index linked type uh, because uh, there were no small cap indices, so. Uh, it's hard this to have was, an index fund if there are no indices. This was pre-Russell 2000? Pre-Russell 2000, yeah. Uh, uh, around 1981, is nine, that about was, right? Yeah, right, 1981. And, and what's the story with the phone company not giving you phone lines? They thought you were running a bookie joint or something? Yeah. <laughs> well, the world wasn't quite ready for a uh, money management firm in Brooklyn at the time. Okay. This was back before it became fashionable. Um, and so we started with the idea that uh, – there's a simple proposition that we went in and talked to big institutions about. Uh, it was that in forming an equity portfolio, you ought to have stocks of large companies and small companies. Mm -hmm. You should invest all your money just in large. I mean, makes sense. And it makes sense. Uh, so that was uh, the proposition. Now, observe uh, we uh, didn't have a track record. Actually, nobody did because institutions weren't holding the stocks of smaller companies in any great proportion. About the only small companies' uh, stocks they were holding were stocks of companies that once had been big companies. Uh, <laughs> and so so they had the odds and ends small company exposure. But uh, this was the first systematic way of accessing uh, a small cap universe. And these were really relative to what the typical pension fund or, or mutual fund was holding. These were really micro caps. These were, my, yeah, these were uh, 
um, very small uh, companies, but it would, you know, it's roughly uh, about sixty uh, percent of the total stocks in the that are publicly traded. But in aggregate, they only represent about uh, you know five percent of the market. Did you run into any special challenges trying to either trade these things, find coverage on these companies, or the whole idea of micro caps to big pension funds? How, how was it received? Well. <clears throat> It was received well, but there was a lot of skepticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, first off, we didn't have a track record, even though nobody did. I was our first portfolio manager, and actually, I'd never managed money before. And uh, so there were uh, the reason, but the big skepticism was about uh, the trading, the execution that you're talking about. Big the, wide spreads. Big spreads, and we are going to the marketplace because we come from the efficient market side of things. Mm-hmm. We come to the marketplace knowing we don't have any special information about the company, but we're trading with largely with institutional investors that think they do have special information. So the question and leading academics uh, were, you know, brought this up. You know, why won't you just get skinned going in and trading with people that are much more knowledgeable about the companies uh, that uh, that you're investing in? So, so what's the answer to that question? Well, we turned uh, what was a problem into kind of an advantage. Uh, people that think they have undiscounted information realize that whatever special insights they have will not be lasting for long. Mm-hmm. And so there's an anxiety to trade, and that's what we worked on. We approached the marketplace basically uh, waiting for sellers uh, wanting to come uh, to us. So so you're saying patience is actually a virtue for investors? Absolutely, <laughs> patience and flexibility. Uh, so... Uh, and coming into the marketplace, if you can get the other person to move first, then uh, you can- uh, you, you win that particular trade. You, you win that trade. We're, we're speaking with David Booth, co-CEO and chairman of Dimensional Funds. Let's talk a little bit about your explosive growth since 1981. I know in hindsight, it looks like a long, gradual process. But when you look at some of these numbers, so so when you launched the firm in 81, you essentially launched with zero assets. Zero assets, right. You began with nothing. How long did it take before you were at a hundred million dollars? Oh, uh, it was about um, well, it took us about nine months to get registered mm-hmm. with all the and, and come out with it. And then the first year, I think we had uh, something like uh, eighty million. So it was it was about a year and a half, right? Something like that to get to hundred million. So so here's the numbers I, I came up with, and I tried to look at it by decade. So by the time you finished your first decade, nineteen ninety, you were up to four billion. By 1999, right in the peak of the boom, you were at 30 billion. 2009, you're at 124 billion, and then around 2010 was a little over 200 billion and 400 billion today. When you look back at the past, you know, 40 years, that's 30 years. That's an amazing run of of asset accumulation. Well, it's it, you know, we've obviously uh, been very fortunate. I think. Um a lot of the reason for it is this notion of indexing, and and I'm I'm a fan of indexing. We don't exactly do indexing, but uh, indexing has worked very well, and and the principles of indexing are uh, such that people can stay with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the idea is that we attract new clients coming in, and a um, few clients leave. Uh, so let let's describe what you mean by indexing. So there's not individual stock picking. I like this management. I like that product. It's we're going to buy a group of stocks with these characteristics. Right. 
and there's no market timing. You're long and fully invested. There's no, I feel that a 10% correction is coming, so I'm going to move to the side and pay some big taxes. There's none of that. Right. So it's, so you're, you're essentially about long-term broad ownership of equities. Right. Uh, the key to investing, uh, well, the, the first key to investing is find a philosophy that you can stick with through mm-hmm. thick and thin. The reason our clients have been, one of the reasons they've been so successful, uh, in addition to the, we've been able to have a performance advantage over index funds, but the other main reason they've been, they've had a good experience is they were able to stick with the uh, investment philosophy through that very difficult 2007, 2009 period. Mm-hmm. We, we notice just watching the world of investing that the retail investor has a tendency to, we call it the flavor of the month. Yeah. Oh, this fund manager is doing well this month. Oh, look at this sector. Uh, you clearly, you have no interest in that sort of no thing. No interest in that sort of thing. You know, there, there's been something like $700 billion of outflows from U.S. equity mutual funds over the last, uh, since the peak of the market in 2007. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a huge outflow. Yeah, we're, every year we've had positive flows because uh, people can understand the process. They realize, basically, we're, we go up and down with the markets, and it shouldn't come as a surprise that every now and then there's a down market. In the last 30 seconds we have, how is the firm managing this phenomenal growth? What's your secret to staying true to your, your principles when money is just flowing in the doors like that? Well, it's it's uh, operating extremely efficient, efficiently. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is David Booth. He is the chairman and co-CEO of Dimensional Funds Advisors. And let's talk a little bit about this quote from Mac McGowan, who you worked with uh, earlier in your career. We were talking about that before at Wells Fargo. McGowan said, it's all thanks to Jim Laurie, Gene Fama, and Merton Miller. What does that mean? Well... These are the, the key people in, in, in developing the finance department at the University of Chicago. Going back to the mid-50s, uh, Jim Laurie was uh, an associate dean or assistant dean of the business school, and he realized that the field of finance was changing rapidly, and they needed to bring in some of these new young uh, hot Turks uh, to uh, uh, power up the school. And the first person he brought in was Merton Miller. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Merton Miller eventually got his Nobel Prize for his work on capital structure, uh, mm-hmm. cost of capital. Uh, and one of Merton Miller's students uh, was Gene Fama. And uh, Gene, as he mentioned, they got his Nobel Prize uh, for his work in market efficiency. Uh, so uh, they were the, uh, they really not only helped determine the, um, the path that uh, Chicago took, but they also Miller and Fama really set the uh, the established the culture of the place, uh, which has been an amazing, amazingly productive uh, school for economics and finance uh, over the last you know forty years. Who who else were your early mentors? Well, I mean the. Uh, um, I mean, you have to go back to before business school, I guess, for mentors. I mean, my big mentors are, are uh, Fama and McQuown. You know, mm-hmm. uh, they uh, Fama, um, you know, uh, taught me uh, all the basics of investing, and they and gave me the uh, capability of reading, you know, uh, 
uh, academic uh, research uh, even today. And do, do you still read a lot of academic research today? Uh, I wouldn't say a lot. I, I kind of uh, cheat a bit. I uh, wait for Fama or Ken French or Bob Merton to uh, <laughs> pass along uh, what they think is good research, and you, then I, I cherry pick. You, you could do worse with those three as curators. To yeah, say no, the that's least. right. <laughs> so, so you are also Eugene Fama's assistant. Yeah, right. right. You were a research assistant. Right. What What was it like working with him? Well, it was amazing. Uh, first off, he's um, uh, still. You know, uh, just works incredibly hard, mm-hmm. seven days a week, really. Really? Yeah. In fact, there's a one of my favorite stories is uh, uh, about uh, Fama and his colleague, Ken French. Over the last 25 to 30 years or so, uh, uh, Fama and French have collaborated on numerous landmark papers, and they work together all the time. Ken's in, at Dartmouth, uh, mm-hmm. at Tuck School of Business, mm-hmm. and and uh, Gene's at Chicago. So one day— uh, they're 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 having a conversation, and Gene notices that Ken is not being too responsive. So he says, "Well, Ken, what's going on today?" And Ken says, "Gene, it's Christmas." <laughs> so, I mean, these uh, it's a work like that that uh, uh, you know a- has, has enabled. Uh, those guys to succeed. So, so as long as you bring up Ken French, let's talk about the French Fama. Well, the Fama French three-factor model. Right. Why was that such a breakthrough? And and for listeners who may not be familiar with it, it's essentially the concept of looking at market beta plus the small cap premium plus the advantage one gets by buying value stocks over other, let's say, more expensive stocks. Um, why was that such a huge breakthrough? Well, um, you know, investing in equities uh, – you know, there involves many different types of risks uh, that most of which we'll never be able to identify exactly, but uh, a lot of many different kinds of risk. Well, uh, the model until Fama French came along, the model that all leading academics used to do research was just a single factor model, beta. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a great uh, model, elegant theory. It had one drawback in it, that it never described reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, they could... We have a saying that, uh, you know, if you torture the data enough, you can get it to confess to anything. Right, right. But as much as uh, they tortured uh, the the data, they could get, they could never get high beta stocks uh, to have systematically have higher average returns than low beta stocks. So this, what Fahman French did was to actually pull together a lot of research that had been going on over about a 20-year period and uh, concluded that they have a simple three-factor model instead of one. That seem and that did a much better job of uh, of describing uh, you know why one portfolio has a higher average return than another. So in the last thirty seconds we have in this segment, everybody now understands the small cap premium, the value premium. Why haven't these been arbitraged away? Why do well, they still persist? Well, we we think of these as being risk premium, mm-hmm. and we've known for years that stocks have higher average returns than than money market funds on average. But that and that hasn't caused the premium. To, to disappear. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today, and I know I say that every week, but I really mean it, my special guest this week is David Booth. He is the founder, chairman, and co-CEO of Dimensional Fund Advisors with about $400 billion in asset uh, under management. Let's talk a little bit about the rise of indexing. You, you hinted at that in the last segment, but this is really very, very significant. 
Um, let's begin with what you guys do. I know you don't love DFA, but I always hear DFA as opposed to dimensional people. That's the, the shorthand people use. What does dimensional funds do with their indexing that's so significantly different from the, the typical plain vanilla market cap weighted index? Well, the, the underlying premise of the, of the firm around which we uh, started uh, is that indexing is, uh, is terrific, and I think people benefit a lot uh, by it. Uh, it's also a relatively mechanical uh, strategy. If, if a stock goes out of an index, you have to sell it. If, it, uh, if a, a stock comes into an index, you have to buy it, and you have to buy it uh, on the days it comes and goes. So that's, uh, that never appealed to us because we thought that you know, mechanical approaches uh, uh, in terms of uh, generating trading costs, it makes them very expensive uh, to trade. You know, when you have to trade relatively mechanically. And so what about the dimensions? When we talk about dimen- dimensional, we're really talking about dimensions. Right. Which began with small cap. Small cap. Then added value. Right. What does the dimensions do to the return of, of the index? Well, there, there, the, the notion of dimensionality is that there are some factors that can uh, 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 lead to higher average returns in the market than just buying the overall market. If you... Uh, start with an index fund, and you decide, well, why don't I give a little great greater weight to the smaller companies, and why don't I give a little bit greater weight to the uh, lower price stocks, uh, with correspondingly less weight to higher price stocks and bigger companies. Mm-hmm. That's a really that's the notion of dimensionality. It's just it's not uh, if you think of portfolio management as being a function of of two things: stock selection and then uh, how much you weight each stock in a mm-hmm. in a portfolio? Stock selection we really don't spend much time on. That's uh, we hold nearly the, all the stocks in an index, but we hold the the stocks in different proportions than they represent in an index fund. And and to put that into a little context as to what that does to the performance, I'm going to quote an article uh, from not too long ago in Barron's. Seventy-five percent of DFA funds have beaten their category benchmarks over the past. 15 years, 80% of dimensional funds have beaten it over the past five years. That's a heck of a great track record, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, really kind of startling. It, when we first, uh, we started, you know, with so uh, primitively, I guess, so, mm-hmm. you know, with a out of the brownstone in Brooklyn, that uh, it never occurred to us that uh, we could actually outperform an index. We thought because of trading costs that we'd always have a certain lag. And so we we worked really hard to try to, do what we thought was minimizing that 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 uh, that drag on performance, and it turns out we exceeded expectations, and we actually uh, started adding value over index funds. So, so actually, let's talk about that a little bit because you guys have a very sophisticated way of of trading. Um, you're very methodical. You're very opportunistic. We talked earlier and said you're especially patient. Uh, there's an emphasis towards tax efficiency and an emphasis towards low expenses, how did you create that trading methodology and, and what impact does it have? Well, the way we traded it was we just recognized, uh, look, a marketplace is where buyers and sellers come together. And they, they both have to feel like they got a good deal or they don't trade. Well, um, uh, on the other side of our trades, typically are institutional investors that are, they, they have a an idea for change, uh, you know, to either buy this or sell that, whatever it is that they've decided to do. And whatever their decision is, they realize 
the benefit of that is really really short lived. So as we go to the marketplace and we look at you know the bid ask spread, you know the mm-hmm. uh, the that's really kind of uh, a lot of people's measure of trading cost, uh, the bid ask spread. Uh, what we realize is if we could get the other side to act first, we could trade closer to the bid. Uh, in today's terms, a stock may be trading ten dollars to ten dollars and two cents or whatever. You know, makes a it makes a difference if you can buy it at ten dollars or versus ten dollars and two cents. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that was the thinking that went into it. And since you guys are such long term holders and they're short term traders, right? You can afford to be patient. They can't. They right. have to hit the bid while you can wait. And it's a win win deal. It's mm-hmm. not like we're ripping their eyes out. It's uh, they <laughs> they they want. Uh, they want immediacy in trading and are willing to pay for it. And we, in essence, are providing a service to them by, if they're wanting to sell something, we take it off their hands. You know, if we take it down a couple of cents, uh, they think it's it's well worth it. And it makes, over the, for a long-term investor like us, it makes a, a huge difference over the long haul. We're speaking with David Booth of Dimensional Fund Advisors. So let's talk a little bit about how successful indexing has become. Why is this something that seemingly has taken the public so long to discover? Well, uh, I, I think that the idea behind indexing is uh, not intuitively obvious to uh, people at first. Uh, I, uh, most people approach investing the way they approach business in general. You know, the idea that if you're smarter and work harder, and you know, uh, you ought to be able to do better than than somebody else. Uh, and that's just not true of uh, uh, of investing in public markets. When you buy a publicly traded stock, you're buying a piece of paper, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and the uh, investing in the public markets is a zero sum game about whatever the around uh, whatever the market uh, does. So, if one investor has a higher average return than the market, another re- investor has to have a return less than the market. It's just simple arithmetic. Then you work in a little friction from trading costs right. and from fees and, and commissions. Right. And you probably end up with a significantly lower number of people on the below beta side, a greater number of people making less. So it's worse than a zero-sum, isn't it? It's worse than a zero-sum game, yeah. But it's really hard when you see somebody with a great uh, track record. It's tempting to say, look, I think this manager you know, has a chance of consistently beating the market. I mean— or stated differently, if you're going to invest with something, you know you probably won't pick somebody that has a poor track record. You're likely to pick somebody with a good track record. Unfortunately, as uh, research has shown, the number of people with good track records are fewer than you'd expect by chance. Mm-hmm. Just randomly, we would expect more investors to have a good track record than 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 there are. Uh, and so, as a result, you can't. There's no way of telling that a person with a good tracker, good track record, got it by luck or by skill. And, and then there's the issue of what happens when suddenly everybody piles into that one segment because this person's on the cover of some magazine. Right. And then what we invariably see this in in 401ks where people are just flavor of the month, whoever's right. hot that quarter. And usually it's because some segment has done really well, right. and it's about to stop doing really well. Well, people have a tendency to, as we say, skate to where the puck was. <laughs> That's right. Not to uh, the famous quote is "skate to where the puck is going to be," not yeah. to where where it is now. L- let let me mix this up a little bit with you 
and talk about something in general about mutual funds that I've always complained about, the, the lack of involvement in, in corporate governance on behalf of their shareholders. You guys recently started doing something, or I don't know how recently this is, sending warning letters to companies whose um, stock you own and whose management is debating uh, putting in a poison pill into place. Tell us about that. Well, we think it's very important to uh, work hard for shareholder rights. Um, you know, this, our capitalist system requires monitoring. You know, mm -hmm. it's uh, and uh, being uh, an investor and a part owner of a uh, of a company through our clients, uh, we think it's important to do that monitoring and stand up for uh, shareholder rights. Professors Fama and French are very active in this this part of the business. We take it very seriously. Um, you know, uh, we have, and what we did recently was we sent a letter to uh, the companies we invest in, which is basically every public security right. company, <laughs> and uh, said these are the principles that uh, we, uh, uh, along which we vote. And yeah. you're actually voting your proxies because, you know, you look back over the past few decades, mutual funds were notorious for hands-off, arms-length yeah, right. relationship. Yeah, and they really are the ones who own most of the shares on behalf of their, right. their shareholders. Yeah, we just had one a case where a, a company was um, had um, a hostile bid. Uh, another company was going to take it over. So they decided that they were going to put in a poison pill and, uh, and a staggered board. And this was about the time they, their annual shareholder meeting was coming up. And we told them we'd vote against them. Uh, we, our policy is uh, we, uh, we would vote against the directors in that case. Really? And we look to see where those directors are directors in other companies, and we vote against against them there, too. Across the board. The yeah. whole, uh, wherever yeah. they, so how, do you guys have any view on executive compensation? We keep seeing stories about these CEOs and CFOs for public companies. Tremendous, tremendous compensation packages. Yeah, it's uh, it's a really complex area. We know we don't have... Uh, we like to make our decisions based on good empirical research. There's abundant evidence that poison pills are bad uh, um, in general. There are some net operating loss poison pills, but the, the typical uh, poison pill is bad uh, for shareholders. So that's why we vote against it. Thank you so much, David, for being so generous with your time. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please check out the rest of our discussion. You can find that on Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, and, of course, Bloomberg.com. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to the podcast portion of the show. This is where I take off the headphones and not worry about... Uh, I love this like cinema verite. You can hear the headphones come off. You can hear the papers rattling. Um, but this part is where we kind of... Get a little less formal. Don't worry about the radio length segments, which are always an annoying interruption. And just let the tape recorder roll and have a little fun. Um, I have so many questions to ask you. You're not going to get back to Austin for, for days if I go through everything. So I'm really going to focus on on really the most important ones because I, 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 I've been looking forward to chatting with you for so long. Let, let's start with one about... Uh, dimensional. When when you began, um, it was purely an institutional business, wasn't it? That's right. H how did your relationship with uh, financial advisors come about? 
Hunt tells me there's actually a, a good story behind this. Well, it's um, uh, sometimes uh, when people achieve a bit of success, uh, people assume that uh, it was it was planned. Uh, this was one of these uh, fortunate uh, pieces of good luck uh, that happened to us. Nothing wrong with a little serendipity now and again, <laughs> right? What happened was uh, by uh, 1989, uh, we'd uh, gotten up to about four or five billion dollars in our management, and we thought we were uh, smoking and. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, so you were 1% of the size of the company today, yeah. and you thought, this we is huge. it, we've made it. Yeah, we've made it. <laughs> so uh, we had an advisor, there was an advisor in Sacramento who approached us and said- what, What's his name? Dan Wheeler. Dan Wheeler, because people love to hear their name on the radio. Oh, yeah. Okay, so Dan, well, if you're listening, this is about you. Yeah, no, it was, uh, so Dan approached us with the idea of getting, of getting access to our funds, because mm -hmm. they're low cost and they're, they're priced for institutions. And- uh, we said, well, you know, we don't know about that because uh, we've heard about individuals and how they get in and out of the market and flavor of the month, flavor of the month, and all of that. And uh, that really um, wasn't kind of our thing. And he said, oh no, 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 he, he, uh, he didn't, uh, he didn't do that sort of thing. So we said, okay, we'll give you, we'll try it. And uh, but if we find that you're trading a lot of our, of our funds, then we're going to get rid of you. Done. So uh, he said, okay. Well, a year went by. Next year, he comes back. He goes, hey, look, I think uh, uh, there's a business in this. There's a number of advisors. I've talked to a lot of advisors. They're very interested in getting access to your funds. And once again, we said, well, that's okay, but we we need to talk to them first. We need to be convinced that they're like you, that they won't be just trading willy-nilly. Mm -hmm. and, and so year two, how many people does he bring in as – you know, the next group of financial advisors? Well, it was enough. Uh, it was a small enough group that we could all sit around a table. Let mm -hmm. me put it that way. I think there were 10 or 12 advisors. And So when did this um, take off as a, a, an actual business within dimensional funds? Well, it, uh, it, it, picked, up, it picked up steam pretty quickly. Uh, it wasn't, you know, overnight by any means, but, you know, it's been 25 years and uh, it, 26 years, and it's, uh, it's, um, uh, just kind of taking a life on his own. It's uh, what gentleman's name was Dan Chap Dan Dan Wheeler. Dan Wheeler. And what's your relationship with with Dan now? No, well, Dan retired a mm -hmm. couple of years ago. Uh, we, you know, what's one of the problems we're facing now is that all these people have been good friends over the years. We're all getting a little older, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Fama. did he did he work directly with with you guys? Did he work for you, or was he just? He An started, outside advisor. Yeah, uh, he uh, uh, worked with us and uh, built the business up. And uh, you know, it what it is is that the difference in approach uh, between us and, and most firms is um, we built a firm around a set of ideas, this notion of market efficiency, and uh, mm -hmm. and developed our investment philosophy as as the empirical research uh, in into dimensions evolved. So. Uh, um, what uh, we kind of wait for advisors to uh, that share that opinion and then and those those ideas, we wait for them to contact us really because it's very difficult if you go out to all the advisors out there. It's you know it's uh, difficult to find out which ones in advance would be interested in hearing this kind of story. So we kind of wait until they're ready to hear the story uh, before we talk to them. How many advisors do you work with now? There are about. Uh, um, 
3,000 advisory firms. And mm-hmm. now uh, some firms have a lot of advisors, some just a one-person advisory shop. What percentage of, of the $400 billion are the advisors actually uh, working with? They're about uh, 60% of our business now. Really? Yeah. Talk so. about – so really you guys tacked to a different direction and became the majority of uh, your AUM. Well, yeah, part of it is um, that the institutional business when we started was uh, – our, our clients were the large defined benefit plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, those have been systematically shut down over the years. So right. That isn't as – Make a business as it once was, uh, and you know more of it's coming into the individual market. So let's talk a little bit about um, let's talk a little bit about you. You run a four hundred billion dollar farm. You're the chairman and the co CEO. Right. What's a day in the life of David Booth like? Well, it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, really a lot of fun. Uh, I think the uh, culture of the firm is that you know people have a spirit that we can we can change things. Uh, and so uh, uh, it's a lot of client work. It can be – there can be any – one of the beauties is every day is different, and there can be problems like, uh, uh, you know, Argentina shuts down, you know, mm-hmm. capital control shuts – closes the market, or it could be uh, some sort of trade error or something. There are always some kind of concerns. But the fun is really working with the clients. And, you know, ultimately, uh, we're working with individuals, and mm-hmm. – the enthusiasm comes from taking these new ideas around which we built the firm and seeing the light go on for uh, people as they come in. And say, that aha moment, uh, yeah. that's uh, that's the excitement in the business. Uh, people go, I get it now. So so let's talk about a, a decidedly not aha moment. You guys did fairly well throughout the financial crisis. What was it like running an asset management firm when – you know the the markets get shellacked and and people are panicking. Well, it's it's very stressful. Obviously, um, we're not immune to stress. Sometimes people say, "Well, you're because you're not trying to time the markets, you don't care." I mean, we care. It's just that uh, there's not and we don't we're not in control of the markets. Did um, you see a lot of outflows? Did you get a lot of panicked calls? How how did that? What was the day to day like when you were in the midst of oh eight oh nine? Well, the distinct distinguishing characteristic is that. Uh, our clients stayed the course uh, when there were massive flows out of equity funds uh, across the industry. Mm-hmm. We were one of the few firms that actually had positive flows every year. Positive flows through 07, 08, 09. Yeah, right. And, and that explains why over the past five years you've doubled in uh, in size yeah, right. in terms of – so this – in hindsight, I, I don't mean this as a positive because everybody wishes it never happened, but – Net net, you guys came out fairly well after the crisis. Yeah, we, you could see the benefit of having a story about equilibrium, which is what we believe. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes people would panic and go, "Gosh, if markets are efficient, you know, why are they down fifty percent?" And and the answer is, is that markets are efficient; they're not perfect. You know, markets have always gone up and down, and they'll continue to go up and down. That's why you have a positive expected uh, outcome from investing in stocks. People. You know, you have to have a positive expected outcome or people wouldn't invest in stocks. So it was, we um, had great traction just going, just reviewing the basics with people. When they come in totally stressed out, we'd say, hey, look, markets are where buyers and sellers come together. They both have to, in a voluntary transaction, they both have to have, I feel like they got a good deal or they don't trade. Now, if you look at the market, what's going on now, 
their trading volumes are huge. So there's a lot of buyers coming into the market. Now, as to whether it's voluntary or not, mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of voluntary uh, buyers, but there are a lot of forced sellers. People have margin calls and whatnot. Sure. So without uh, being a market forecaster, I did this video in late 2008, beginning of 2009. It turns out it would... It was right pretty close to the bottom of the market. Um, but it wasn't about timing at all. It was about explaining how markets work and just reviewing that. And you say, look, Warren Buffett's out there buying. after He had a, a number of transactions he reported uh, at this time. So, And his track record isn't too bad, right? His track record is not too bad. <laughs> so we said, if we had to make a guess, if anything, probably the buyers are getting too good a deal now. And, you know, I've washed my mouth out with soap if uh, I really said that they they got uh, it was inefficiently priced, but they got a good deal of buyers because you look at the uh, tepid recovery uh, since uh, the recession over six years ago. Stock market's done great, and yeah, the, and the recovery's been uh, relatively modest. So you might ask yourself, why? How would that happen? Well, I think prices got to really attractive levels, right. so it didn't take much of a recovery to have them pop back up. So, so in other words, markets are efficient, but people may not be the most efficient, the most rational sellers when emotions rear their head. Absolutely, I, I've, I, we have an advisor who says, "I uh, don't have people with investment problems. I've got investments with people problems." <laughs> That's perfect. That really, that really makes um, sums it up perfectly. You know who I've been meaning to ask you about, and I actually skipped over it earlier is um, one of the earliest people you were working with um, when you began. How did you meet, uh, I want to pronounce his name correctly, Rex Sinquefield? Is that Sinquefield, right? yeah. Sinquefield, yeah, Rex. He and, um, he and I were classmates at business school. Actually, my second year in the program at, at Chicago, uh, I was a teaching assistant for Fama, and uh, Rex took uh, Fama's course. And uh, so... Um, I graded you know, his papers, but uh, on Fridays we would have uh, uh, a Q&A with the teaching assistants, uh, and Rex always showed up. He was a a zealot, over, you know, uh, really a scholar. And um, so uh, he, after uh, he graduated from, uh, from Chicago with his MBA, he went to work for American National in Chicago, and there he developed the first S&P 500 index fund. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so you launch DFA in Brooklyn. You reach out to Rex at, at a certain point. Yeah, he had got wind of what we were uh, doing, and um, we had just started. We weren't for very far along at all. And he said he'd been thinking about doing something similar uh, on his own. So we said, "Well, look, uh, why don't we do this together?" So it was yourself, Rex. Who else was one of the early co-founders? Well, we had uh, a number of people, uh, several colleagues that uh, I'd worked with, uh, and my assistant from before. The, the a couple of the key people as well, and actually a, a part of the story of the firm is really all the outside directors we had, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, are uh, academics. Uh, well, not all of them are academics, because I have a little further down my list to ask you about your relationship with one of my favorite Knicks, former Senator Bill Bradley. Oh, okay. Well. Um, <clears throat> You know, uh, we've been working with Senator Bradley about five years. Um, he's, uh, uh, you know, been a terrific, ad uh, you know, addition. Uh, he works on a consulting basis. He's not, mm -hmm. 
Uh, is he a director or just well? A, he, uh, he's a, a, you know an outside advisor, mm -hmm. and uh, he's uh, deeply concerned about retirement income uh, mm -hmm. for people. And we've been doing a lot of work, uh, head you know, headed by Bob Merton, uh, on uh, uh -huh. helping people think through and prepare for uh, retirement. And uh, there's a budding, a bit of a budding retirement crisis. The uh, the average baby boomer does not have enough money. Saved for for their retirement, yeah, yeah, do they? No, they don't. And they're and there's not they're they're not short by a little. They're short by a lot. So what's going to end up happening twenty years hence? When I, I think the number is something like forty or sixty thousand boomers a day are retiring over the next ten years. Is is that about right? Uh, that sounds uh, that sounds right. And it's um, it's just you know it's a huge crisis. It's it's hard to make up uh, if somebody's close to retirement and and hasn't saved enough it's it's hard to save a lot in just a few years mm -hmm. the important thing is to train people and uh, think about retirement over their over their lifetime we, we have a friend Patrick O'Shaughnessy who wrote a book called Millennial money and basically says the advantage that 20-somethings have is they have a 50-year runway to save and the advantage of compounding is enormous you will never again in your life have that much of a a runway. And most people, look, I think I'm pretty typical. I was interested in investing for many years, but I never really got serious until my late 30s. It didn't hurt to be earning a little more. But, you know, you think about what that 20 years of compounding could have done, even a little bit would have made a huge difference. Totally. It's uh, the magic of compounding is one of the most important uh, aspects of investing. So we talked about your trading strategy, and we talked about um, what it was like running uh, running the firm. Someone said to me that, and I want you to clarify this, you guys are effectively market makers for 14,000 stocks. I think that's somewhat of an overstatement. Yeah. You're not truly market makers. You're, you're just providing liquidity right. by by offering slightly better prices than the the bid is that is that a fair way to describe it yeah we try to trade as close to the bid as we can um, if we were a market maker we would be actively trading every day I mean one of the one of the principles we have is we don't want to see much uh, turnover in the portfolios mm -hmm. uh, uh, the best way to save on trading costs is not trade very often uh, <laughs> and then uh, my, my colleague says the solution to high frequency trading is low frequency trading there you go well, you know these high frequency traders are out there, and that you know I'm. We don't do high frequency trading. I, uh, uh, as long as everybody has access to the same information, I don't have a problem with uh, high frequency trading. So let's talk a little bit about your co-CEO Eduardo Repetto. What's his role? How has he influenced the growth at Dimensional Funds? Well, he's been he's been spectacular. Uh, Eduardo's background was uh, he. Got his PhD in uh, some form of aeronautical engineering at Caltech. Uh, mm -hmm. He's explained it to me, but I don't. Uh, <laughs> it, it goes beyond. Uh, I can make paper airplanes, and that's about it. Uh, but uh, anyway, he got tired of uh, uh, of that area and uh, thought about doing uh, finance. And he approached us, and he joined our uh, research team. It turns out, academic research in finance is very similar to. The, the the academic way you do academic research and in, in aeronautical engineering it's uh, mm -hmm. you know research there's some general principles you follow and a lot of the same math and so forth so he uh, and 
being as bright, he's phenomenally bright, and he picked up what he needed to learn about finance uh, in a very short period of time. And so what's so you guys are co-CEOs, which is somewhat of a unusual arrangement in finance. How do you guys divide the, the responsibilities? Well, he, he, he does the work and I take the credit. That's basically <laughs> uh, the way it works. I have, to, I have to see if I can get that done in, in, my, own, uh, in my own office. So, okay, good. So are you, would you say he's more operations and you're really more strategic or? Well, I would say he's more hands-on. I've um, uh, tried to get out of day-to-day management. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and we have a you know a huge bench, uh, a lot of depth in the firm, and uh, mm-hmm. it's you need to make that generational transfer. It's really important in running a business, sure. If, uh, that that you ha- you know hand off, and uh, so uh, Ed- Eduardo had you know heads up the next uh, generation, and uh, you know of brilliant, hardworking people. That that's nice to have that sort of a uh, deep bench behind you. Let, let's talk a little bit about the research paper you did with Gene Fama, Diversification Returns and Asset Management. Won a Graham and Dot Award, didn't it, back in Ooh. 1992? Yeah, right. Not too bad. So <laughs> too what, bad. what motivated you to say well, to your old professor, hey, let's do a paper? Well, it, uh, you, know, what, you know, basically one of the biggest principles we have at the firm is diversification is your buddy, you know, uh, and it's difficult uh, for people to see the benefit of diversification. You know what? You know, uh, on TV sometimes they say if you have five stocks, you know you're diversified. You know. Uh, yes, uh, you have five large cap tech stocks. Yeah, you're perfectly. Yeah, yeah. That's it. You don't need anything else. <laughs> and so people need to help thinking through, uh, you know, the importance of diversification. That's really what that paper was about: is measuring uh, how much your compound return. We we've talked about compounding. Mm-hmm. How much. Uh, your compound return is improved over time through diversification. So there's diversification, then there's rebalancing. Yes, it, pretty close to a free lunch. If, if if I were to say that anything is a free lunch on on Wall Street, that's that's, that's it. the closest. That would, that would be the first. That would be the yeah the right? leading candidate. Yeah, right. Doesn't cost you anything. You're not taking additional risk, or whatever costs you is tiny. Right. And you basically over a period of decades compound an extra. Let's call it hundred basis points. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that'd be high. That'd probably a little high, but it's pretty close to that. And hundred basis points uh, over the long haul can make a huge difference, right? Especially with no additional risk and, yeah, right. and de minimis costs. Right. Um, so let, let's continue along along those same lines. Um, you guys first started with dimensions. We mentioned earlier it was there was beta plus small cap, and then after small cap was value. What other dimensions might potentially be coming down the pike? Well, we've uh, been uh, doing a lot of work um, with uh, uh, a couple of measures on profitability, mm-hmm. and it turns out uh, uh, that adds uh, uh, quite a bit. Uh, and and uh, reinvestment or investment, company investment. So, so there's always a lot of research coming along. It takes seems like it takes about every ten years uh, for a, a new idea to come along. So so let's look at each of those. So we'll start with profitability. Pretty intuitive. The more profitable a company is, is it straight up profits or is it change? Is it growth it's, of profits? It's it's uh, it's a it's a measure of profitability. The what um, and you're right. People uh, think that's intuitive. Of the you have to throw in the caveat though, uh, which is, uh, gosh, that seems like common sense. Why would I get paid more if a company's more profitable? It seems like that's lower risk. And that's not really, 
That's not really what's uh, going on. What's going on is you say, look, suppose I have two stocks and uh, and they're selling at the same price, but they have the same you know, kind of characteristics. One, mm-hmm. And one of them has a greater profitability measure. How do you explain uh, uh, that uh, it's they're selling at the same you know uh, same price? Mm-hmm. Well, that the earnings must be riskier. So uh, it's uh, there's something about that company that's riskier. And, that's the uh, thought process. That's the thought process of how you can make. You but know. you're saying that's wrong. In other no, no, words. no. I'm, I'm saying that's uh, that's right. If you uh, um, by uh, it's just it's just another way of me- getting at this notion of risk. Uh, if two, they're stated differently. If two companies have the same expected cash flows, the ones that's uh, that's that's less certain will sell at a lower price. And what was the other dimension? The other new dimension you said you were yeah, just an investment. It turns out companies. Oh, reinvestment. Yeah, in the, is yeah. that R and D or is that share buybacks and dividends? It, it could be all it, people that uh, companies. The companies that have the lowest return are those that have. Uh, uh, small companies that have um, that are selling at high prices <laughs> that have low profitability measure and invest a lot of money. That's uh, those are the low profitability and are yeah, investing yeah, a lot of money. Uh, yeah, right. And those that's another dimension that actually does fairly well. Well, we don't know. That's uh, the the ones that that are oh, okay. Let me get the ones that are not profitable <laughs> and they're investing a lot. Their returns uh, turn out to be horrible. That's about, okay. They they represent they're hemorrhaging about, cash and they're not making. Yeah, any yeah, money. yeah. It's that's about one percent of the market. And okay. so even though we're not stock pickers, where there's the behavior is so unusual that we've chosen not to invest in those. Uh, uh, so you're just screening them out as low quality, out. and you want nothing to do with them. Yeah, right. And then the reinvestment. How do you define reinvestment? Reinvestment is, is just uh, um, just the normal. Um, R and D or yeah. or well, it's all it's all the it's all the aspects. It's everything. Yeah. So all right. So let let's go back a little bit to the University of Chicago because that was such a short segment. I didn't get a chance to answer you some questions. So uh, the Booth School uh, was was named. You made an unrestricted grant to them, and at the time it was worth about three hundred million dollars. But I suspect it was worth more because the structure of the deal was really kind of interesting. It was. It was cash and a what was described as a considerable share of stock in Dimensional Holdings, which is what owns um, Dimensional Funds, and that has to be worth significantly more money today than when that that grant was made. It, it, what was the thinking behind that structure? Uh, well, the structure was I did, I, I uh, owed the university a lot. Uh, you credit them with you are you've said this in many interviews. You credit them with opening your eyes, changing your life, responsible yeah. for your success. I mean, I'm, these are your words. Yeah, I'm, yeah right. I'm, no, no, they've, they've been a partner every step along the way. You know, really uh, working with Fama, and then when we started the firm, Fama joined us as a director right away and founding shareholder. Mm-hmm. Then we went to uh, we had we created this mutual fund. It, uh, mutual fund has to have an independent board of directors. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are all, all of our independent directors either teach at Chicago or have taught at Chicago. Right. And when we started, this was incredibly important because, you know, we were operating out of my brownstone in Brooklyn and right. and without a track record. So people sometimes ask, how did you get those first clients? And I think we had, I think we were reasonably persuasive, but I think a lot of it has to do with this association. We, the people could see all these people, you know, Fama, 
Scholes, uh, Miller, you know, Ibbotson. You know, it's a. Uh, that's right. Roger Ibbotson is yeah. another one of your outside. Of, so that's a tremendous amount of credibility between yeah. between the the Nobel laureates and and everybody else. So so I owed him, and so you, the question <laughs> was now structuring the deal. Then mm-hmm. uh, I was long. I had a huge debt and uh, little cash because we hadn't really. <laughs> you know, it took a long time to get get, get profitability. So sure, it's basically I cut him in on an income stream. You know. Uh, give them the income on, on on some shares going forward, rather than uh, I didn't write them a check for one big uh, lump sum. It's uh, so they'll have an earn out as you described, and it's you know I, in terms of the valuation, I never got involved in the valuation to begin with. I don't want to get in, involved in it now. It is it is what it is. There's a phrase I read about. Um Chicago and and you described yourself. I'm looking in my notes as someone someone described dimensional funds as the applied brain trust of the Chicago school. Is that, is that a fair statement? Well, we we've uh, yeah, we are about implementation and uh, really the application of the ideas. That is what the firm is about. And uh I think it may overstate a bit to say we we're applying the brain power. I mean there's uh, I guess it's not too much of an overstatement, but um, how about applied think tank from the University of Chicago? Okay, there you go. Uh, yeah, it's. I, I think the important thing is we build a firm around a set of ideas. Most of those ideas were developed in leading business schools, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's what we ask our clients to do is share, you know, that uh, share those ideas, that point of view, and uh, we can all work together. You you had mentioned Jim Laurie earlier. He developed the Chicago Center for Research and Security Prices with Lawrence Fisher. Some people just call that CRISP for yeah. its. Uh, how how significant is that? It's amazing when you go to do some research and you you look for certain data. That's an amazing database. Isn't it's a, it? it is the only re- it is the research quality database that uh, uh, nearly all academics use in doing research, and its significance cannot be. Uh, overstated uh, because let's go back uh, to 1963. If you went around and asked people, what's been the historical rate of return on stocks? Mm-hmm. Nobody knew. You'd have all kinds of wild guesses. Some people guess zero. Some people would say 15% a year. I don't know what that is, but we could kill that. Um, okay. That was that was an odd interruption. That wasn't for us. Um let me see if I can kill that. Hold. You're gonna pause this a second. Is that this? There you go. Okay. I got it. It was. It was one of the headphones started squawking at us. That's funny. That's never happened before. Um, okay, so where no, were we? Some of those. Oh, okay. I'm fine now. So we're. T- oh, you know what I just did? I just turned on the phone. Okay. All right. Again, glad this isn't live. Yeah, right. Charlie, you're going to edit that out. And where were we? We're talking about crisp. Crisp, yeah. Let's go back to 1963. If you asked people uh, what's been the long-term performance of stocks, the stock market, and what's been the rate of return, nobody had a clue because nobody ever collected the, the data. That and That's amazing that people it? did not know what the returns of the markets right. were. So CRISP uh, did this study and found that 
I think uh, for the period ending in 63, that long-term performance had been like 9.3% per year. Mm-hmm. And it's been, uh, it's been uh, amazingly, uh, uh, it's been about that in the years since 63, which is very unusual in economics to have something that uh, worked in one data set right. that shows up again very similarly in the next data set. It almost never happens. So. so it's pretty consistent, and clearly it's a function of a number of factors that apparently um, are, are, are not changing. Well, that's right. And, and so and there was never, back in those days, there wasn't uh, a standard way of measuring uh, your time-weighted rate of return. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you start with uh, you know, uh, a, a certain investment, and mm-hmm. then over the years you add and you add more money to it, take money out, whatever, and then uh-huh. you end up with a certain amount of money. The question is how, how calculating that rate of return, adjusting for the flows, is very complicated. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things that had to come, that had to be created. And so in 1963, for example, there were no really there were no consulting firms that uh, dealt in the business because there was no there was no standard way of measuring performance and doing performance measurement. So that's an industry that's just you know, exploded uh, in the last 50 years. That That's really amazing that we could call those the good old days or the good old bad days. I can't imagine that there just simply wasn't a history of, of data. It's, yeah. that, that's amazing. So so what does that mean for people like, you know, Jeremy Siegel, Stocks for the Long Run? Uh, when that came out, Crisp had already been around for a while. Yeah, right. So so he's basically building on the work that, that they had uh, originally put together. Yeah, you're right. And he he found some data going back even even longer. But uh, it's, you know, if you ignore the history, you're doomed to relive it, I guess. For, for sure. So I keep hearing people talk about we're in a low expected return environment. Stocks have had a great run. Bonds have had a great run. But everybody should throttle back their their expectations going forward. What what are your thoughts on that? Well, there is some uh, loose evidence uh, that there's a relation between, let's say, the overall uh, price earnings on the market and mm-hmm. and subsequent returns. Um, have an interesting story of that. Uh, Do tell so the um, so Fama and French did this research in eighty uh, at uh, uh, and they're 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 drafted the research. Uh, um, we talked about it in one of our board meetings uh, that. When dividend yields are low or price to dividends are high, you know, uh, or mm-hmm. if if valuation ratios are high, the expected returns are low in the market. So this was a meeting we had in September of '87. So I said to Gene Fama, <laughs> I said, "Well, does this mean we should uh, at that time the valuations uh, were high?" I said, "Does this mean we should do something?" He said, "Oh no, no, you know, the variance around that is so high, you don't really have any information." Uh, the next month was the crash of 87. October 87, sure. <laughs> What's well, 23% in a day between friends? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he got um, he mistaken for being a market timer when he obviously wasn't trying to, to say that at all. Now, when he says the variance is so large, is he just saying this is such a noisy series that we can't derive any- Information, right. Th- that's it. So we know that higher PE is a little pricier and lower PE and other yeah. metrics are less expensive, but- there's only so much we could do with this. There's only so much you can do with it. And, you know, people frequently also ask a, a related question, which is, gosh, we're kind of at a peak in the market. Uh, is this really a time to get in? Because we're at an all-time high. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, uh, you would expect to be at an all-time high. I mean, that's just kind of the way markets work. Something like, I don't know, some big fracture. Most of the, the month ends uh, historically have been at, uh, at uh, historical highs. I, I did a column not too long ago. Uh, I want to say in 2013, we started, we the S&P 500 and the Dow got over the pre-crisis highs. Right. And people started writing articles that, Oh, market's at a new high. It's toppy. It's dangerous. So we went back and looked at the data. Turns out that market is at or near highs much of the time. Yeah. Unless you're in a bear market where you're, you know, the Dow kissed 1,066, didn't get over it till 82. But from 82 to 2000, uh, you're you're making a series of fresh highs every year. Yeah, we we talked about um, earlier about one unfortunate circumstance, the person that got out at the bottom of the market went Mm -hmm. to- Money market funds now can't get back in. And the other, there's a similar uh, kind of related uh, person, the person that wants to invest but's going to wait for a crash before getting in. Right. And the market takes off. Then now they go, well, the train's already left the station. It's now I late. can't get in. Right. Now it's too, so they, they they never seem to uh, get caught up. And that emphasizes once again the importance of having a particular investment philosophy, usually translating into an asset mix. Asset allocation and sticking with it. The the psychology we hear from people with that is, look, I missed so much of this run. If I put my money to work now, I'll feel doubly stupid if the next day the market crashes. There's almost this risk aversion, like their investment's going to crash the market. Yeah. <laughs> well, there is kind of Murphy's law and translated into investing, which is, uh, you know. Whenever I put the money in, that's the that's going to be the peak of the market. Uh, so yeah. break it up into four pieces and spread it <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, spread it out, yeah. And you, you don't have to worry about it. You don't that. have to worry. They, they, what you want to do, I think, uh, talking to people for years is, uh, and I counsel people, you want to invest in a way that you can kind of relax. Right. I mean, markets are going to go up and down. Uh, that's what they do. That's what they do. And you shouldn't invest more in the market than you can uh, than you can accept. And- uh, and just ride those ups and downs. As that's the natural order of things. And over the long haul, you're probably going to be okay. What What was the great J.P. Morgan quote? Markets will fluctuate. He was asking <laughs> Congress, "Where Where's the market go? Uh, markets will fluctuate," which is uh, which I think is is a fair well, statement. Well, uh, but speaking of you, uh, fairness is actually uh, one of the things that needs to be emphasized a bit more. In terms what of what? The, well, uh, this whole notion of efficient markets or equilibrium point of view of investing. It says that um, if you take the prof- professional investor versus the average Joe, mm-hmm. they have the same expected outcome, uh, ignoring trading costs. I mean, maybe right. a, the institution can trade cheap or something, but, but ignoring the costs, uh, expected outcome uh, for each uh, is, is the same. That's about as fair as it life gets. In other words, it's not the case that the average Joe going in to invest, or Jane, I don't yeah. Sure. Uh, the average family the, the, member the average, buying stocks. You know, has, uh is not getting ripped off by the professional investor. I think that's really cool. That's one of the it's one of the implications. And that's why I think those of us that share this point of view, you know, feel this kind of missionary zeal to spread the word. The, there's been a number of discussions, a number of people have said, you know, individuals actually have an advantage. An individual doesn't have someone at the end of the quarter or these days, the end of the month, saying, how'd you do? Why am I underperforming the benchmark? Why aren't you doing better? An individual can ride the ups and downs without 
somebody breathing down their neck. Well, they can, but they don't. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, uh, you know, it's um, one way to think about the market is uh, just kind of a, and and the role of indexing is just simple arithmetic. Um, index funds buy a slice of the whole market, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, and so since they buy just a, a slice of the market, then the non-index portion, I mean the active portion, has got to be buying a slice of the market right. uh, because it's got to add up to the market. So by simple arithmetic, you know, the the active people are trading with themselves largely. Trading right. with each other more or less. Yeah, yeah. So it's a zero-sum game and uh, mm-hmm. minus the costs. So, so you mentioned diversification. What else should investors be thinking about things like asset allocation, stocks and, and bonds, as well as valuation? How, how should they contextualize that? Well, I think uh, first off, they need to figure out, uh, it, it sounds simple, but what's the objective here? Is it mm-hmm. retirement? Are you saving for uh, college, college or a house? Or a or, house? Or what, mm-hmm. what is the pr- and each of those, you would manage the money a little bit differently depending on, uh, on what the objective is. That would be your tilt towards a little more stock or a little, a little less, more bonds. Yeah, right. On. But it is about uh, asset allocation and, and, and risk. And, and, uh, and in the case of retirement, it's about maintaining a standard of living in retirement mm-hmm. uh, and um, having an objective of uh, I want a certain retire- income in retirement uh, adjusted for inflation leads you to uh, manage money uh, a little differently than uh, than the typical firm uh, firm or person uh, just seeking to maximize wealth. You know, we, you talked earlier about the upcoming retirement crisis. We're going to be facing, and I'm trying to remember the name of Charlie Ellis's book, yeah, which was about that just that subject, um, which is we have a day of reckoning coming, and no one really seems to be prepared for it. And the math is pretty clear: most Americans are not going to be able to afford a, a comfortable retirement without some radical change in their spending and saving behaviors. Yeah, I, I think I haven't checked that recently, but uh, I think you can buy a real annuity that has about a five percent yield. Then buy a real annuity, meaning that as long as you live, it it pays you that five uh, percent adjusted for uh, uh, you know adjusted for inflation. Five percent. Yeah, and um, so that means I mean it's a simple math. You figure out uh, how much you want to have multiplied by twenty, and and that's what how much you <laughs> and, need. That's how much you need. So let's talk. We talked a little bit about corporate governance earlier, about poison pill adaptation. Um, there's some some agitation out of the SEC and and DC uh, about the post financial crisis, SIFI, system, systemically important financial institutions. How on earth did mutual funds, which had nothing whatsoever to do with the last any of the last crises, either 0708 or 2000 or I don't remember if mutual, other than the mutual fund timing scandal, which really had nothing to do with them being systemic. Um, how, how did how did mutual funds get dragged in, and and what are you guys doing about this in terms of of that regulatory? Can I call it overreach? Yeah, you can. Okay. Yeah, the, uh, it's um, um, somehow in the. Uh, it seems like in reading the press, one would uh, think that part of the the. the Reason we had a financial crisis was that we didn't have enough regulation. The regular, and if there's any, are 
any institutions that are heavily regulated is banks and insurance companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Insurance uh, company, other than AIG, which was kind of a unique creature, yeah. the rest of the insurance industry had nothing to do with this. And I'm a critic of hedge funds. They cost too much. Most of them don't deliver on what they promise. But hedge funds didn't have a whole lot to do with no, this crisis no, either. No. either. But of all the entities in the world of finance, mutual funds were bystanders. They were observers. They had nothing to do with this. And there's crisis. no evidence that there was any kind of panic. That was, uh, no. That, uh, no, it didn't. It's um, but there is, there is a theory that uh, we need to have a lot more uh, regulation. I don't know why, uh, but the mutual fund, you know, the money's sitting in a in a, the assets are in a vault somewhere. Right. It's not like uh, people right. are running off with them. Um, and I think they kind of help prevent a bigger panic. You know, back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, if you recall those, the the. The anxiety, there was uh, stress that people were experiencing then. You know, that's uh, we were worried that uh, people would panic and you know rush for the door all at the same time, and it just didn't happen with mutual funds. It happened with people's individual monies, but it didn't, sure. it didn't happen with uh, didn't happen with mutual funds. And, and uh, especially you guys, you guys are notorious yeah. for having very long perspective. And your financial advisors, full disclosure, we own dimensional funds in in my office, but, you know, we watched, we went through that whole training process. We know how you guys operate. It made us think that other advisors, there's always that sort of game of chicken, uh, well, I don't want to sell, but I got to sell before that guy. You don't have that situation, do you? No, we don't. I I think uh, a lot lot of it stems from the fact that uh, there was, uh, you know, one or two uh, money market funds that had to break the buck. Sure, and that's what I the think that's what fund. this is all about. They go, okay, uh, uh, that's those are really that's really banking in disguise. Uh, money market fund. And, and keep in mind, for tax reasons, they're always quoted as a dollar. Yeah, where we know it fluctuates up and down. So that's a, should be a relatively simple thing to fix. There's no such thing as risk free return, but that's what they were promising. Yeah, right. I don't know why taxpayers are suddenly on the hook. For backing people's risk investments in money market, hey, you could park your money in short-term treasuries if you want risk-free low returns. Yeah, right. It, it, so you think that well, has, is why? Let me, yeah, no, I mean, I, I I'm on the same uh, same you know, page. Yeah. So, so you're about to say something about well, risk. I mean, that's let's. Um, it's important as as cause it ties into retirement. Uh, uh, the retirement discussion. Treasury bills are riskless in the sense that there's really you're going to get paid, and if it's short term, there's not much uh, price risk. They are extremely risky when you think about a person retiring, because uh, you know um, an example would be somebody retired 20 years ago, mm-hmm. probably got a five percent yield if they bought bonds. Now whatever they're getting, uh, depending on which bond you buy, you know, you know one two. Maybe three percent. You have to reinvestment, and the risk is if you're getting a higher yield, you're also getting higher inflation. Yeah. So there's a real risk that the value of your assets are yeah, going to yeah. be worth less. Yeah, right. So it's uh, for a, a retired person, they can be actually pretty risky. Which all points back to how underinvested much of America is in their own own yeah, retirement. Right. Right. So this this leads to a couple of of questions that are on my list. What is hurting investors today? What are they doing that's getting in their own way? 
Well, I think um, um, I haven't done this is not science at all, but I think one of the concerns that I have is that people are desperate for yield and uh, they look mm -hmm. at, at uh, money market funds and basically a zero return. I mean, you know, a, little, a skosh. Uh, and they go, I got, I got to, I got to do something. I got a better yield than that. You uh, get thirty percent on Greek bonds today, if that's what you, yeah. if you're really looking yeah. for yield. Yeah. So there we go. Well, there we have it bracketed <laughs> somewhere between Treasury bills and Greek. Uh, so people forget about the risk and they yeah. chase yields, and that leads yeah, to right. disaster. And you know, inflation. You know, it's probably real interest rates are negative two percent. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, something like that. But uh, meaning that we're at zero, and you throw in two percent inflation. Uh, inflation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So once you get, once you adjust that, you're you're really negative. Yeah, and when we started the firm, I think uh, interest rates were like fifteen percent in '81, mm -hmm. and inflation was like eighteen percent. So right. you had negative three percent. So oh, so this is better than so yeah. So it's better. I mean, it's uh, the difference is you no longer have bonds risk free rate of return at least nominally yeah. competing with equities. No, so. Right. That to me, that explains a big chunk yeah. of why we have such elevated uh, prices and equities. Yeah, so I think people are um, maybe too. Maybe uh, there's. I haven't looked. I haven't seen any studies, but I'd be worried that people might be investing too much in equities uh, because of uh, you know the, the, the. If you look at the dividend yield, it's higher than the interest rate, which well, is, makes it seem like a free lunch. Well, we've seen a lot of people take assets that otherwise under normal circumstances would have found their way to fixed income. And they say, let me just put into a dividend portfolio and I'll get my coupon. Right. And if this goes up and down, I don't worry about it. Right. Uh, some risk in that as well. Yeah, that's right. And as long as the company's paying the dividends, you're okay. But you know, it's, most of them don't pay dividends. In forever. Forever. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about... Um, your perspectives, you've had a 30-plus year window since you launched Dimensional Funds in 81. We're coming up on your 35th anniversary. Not yeah, too far. next year, right. That, that's amazing. So what has changed um, in your perspective? What, what has changed in the industry, and how has Dimensional Funds changed along the way? Well, um, I'd, I'd say a couple of things. First off, we understand a lot more about uh, what causes uh, returns, where where returns come from, mm -hmm. uh, in this dimensionality. Um, and the second aspect, uh, though, is really this movement towards indexing. You know, the ideas that were started in the academic world in the '60s that led to the creation of index funds in the '70s. You know, has really gained traction over the since the '80s, and it's really, uh, uh, you know, I'm surprised it hasn't gotten you know, you know, more assets. Uh, it, it's amazing that it's taken half a century for something that appears to be obvious to really have caught on, which leads to the ne next question. How much room is there for indexing to grow? What what? It's not especially huge today, but how big is too big? Well, we don't know that. I mean, at some point, if uh, but in general, index funds just take a, a pro rata slice of everything. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they're about as they're the most neutral strategy out there as opposed to. You know, somebody wanting growth or income or whatever they object. All of those slants that cause you to get away from the market have capacity constraints. But uh, your your basic market index fund, uh, you know, uh, should be pretty neutral. It could absorb kind of an untold amounts. Lots of upside and, and no ceiling anytime soon. Right. So 
here we are. We're six years into this bull market. There's plenty of skepticism out there. Why no euphoria? Why has the investing public, I don't want to say shunned, but clearly they haven't jumped aboard this bull market the way they did in the 1990s? Well, even the 1990s, uh, I don't know if they really jumped on or not. It seems to me like I've been in the business 44 years or whatever. I think uh, uh, people are always there's always skeptical. People are always nervous. I mean, that's Wall which is word. good. Which is sure. good. You know, that's uh, um, and markets being what they are, it seems like uh, prices over the long haul get set fairly, and people have a reasonable return if they if they stick with it. Not so. So let me go to now to my favorite three questions. These are the three that I ask all of my guests, and and the. The answers are always so instructive. Someone coming out of, we're not too far from graduation weekend all across the country. Someone graduating college today. What sort of advice would you give them about their career and about their approach to investing? Well, a career, I'd say follow your passion. I don't think I have any great new insights that, uh, you know, it's the standard uh, uh, mm -hmm. bromides, I think. Uh, in terms of investing, the key to investing is save a lot. Uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> So start early, uh, and uh, you know through the, the the benefits of compounding over the long haul, uh, it's a powerful force. Next question is: You said you've been in the industry for forty four years. Uh, we talked about what you saw change over that time period. So let me change this question up: What changes do you think are coming over the next forty four years? Well, I think that a couple of the trends uh, that. Uh, we see now uh, will continue. Uh, one is uh, globalization. Uh, people, when I started in the business, it was we had the interest equalization tax and other things. It was very difficult to invest internationally. Mm -hmm. So I think that's changing, which is which is good. Um, the other is uh, is I, I think a very positive trend, which is a lot of the administrative costs and transaction costs are really coming down a lot. Kind of. It's related to technology somehow. For sure. So I think the costs of investing are coming down, and I think that's uh, uh, more than just movement to indexing, but I think in, in general costs are coming down. So I think it's you know, a, you know, very encouraging. And then my last question, and this may um, – you may be the only person this question doesn't apply to, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What do you know about investing today that you wish you knew when you began 44 years ago? Well, uh, and by the way, the reason I say it may not apply to you is you began with an idea, yeah, right. that most people don't discover till way late. Well, so no, I mean that uh, part of investing is uh, what I wish I I, I uh, uh, knew back then is that what investing is about is uh, is an overall experience. Uh, it's not just the science. Mm -hmm. I mean, sure, you want good returns, and that's. But when it started out, I think. I thought if you give people good returns, that's all you need to, to worry about. Uh, but it's also you're dealing with people and helping them get through difficult times like 2008, 2009, and come out the other side with a with a consistent investment approach. I wish I knew, you know, that that was uh, that's really uh, that's what it's really all about. It's the philosophy and a consistent approach. Yeah, to that so philosophy. people can feel they need to not only have good returns, they need to feel good. Uh, and not be so stressed out. And they don't, you know, that I wish I had figured that out earlier on. 
David, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. This was really a fascinating um, discussion, and I appreciate you uh, spending so much time with us. Okay, well, thank you very much. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio with Barry Ritholtz. We've been speaking with David Booth. He's the founder, chairman, and co-CEO of Dimensional Funds. David, if they want to find some of your research or learn more about Dimensional Funds, where would they go? On our website, you know, at under .dimensional.com or Dimensional Fund Advisors. There you have it. I want to thank uh, Mike Batnick for his help with research, Charlie Vollmer as my engineer, and thank you, Sarah, for recording this. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.